The Gospel this morning comes from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 10, starting at verse 22. And if you're following in the Church Bibles, it's page 1,667. The Unbelief of the Jews. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We come again to a story about unbelief. And we pray that you would actually wrestle with us and help us to wrestle with our unbelief, but also so that we might share the truth around us. Amen. Um, This is quite a challenging passage. It's quite complex, isn't it? There's a lot uh, going on, and I've divided it into two big ideas. Um, The first is the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. That's the first sort of big chunk, if you like. Um, And the second is the surprising, or perhaps unsurprising, accusation of Jesus being a blasphemer against God. So there's two contrasting ideas going on here, the Messiah and a blasphemer. In fact, you couldn't really be much further apart, could they? They couldn't, they're such polar opposites, but 
we are dealing with such you know, controversial and dynamic and explosive uh, times, aren't we? It's also interesting to notice the, the setting um, because that helps us grab a little bit of what's going on because it was another festival, it was another feast and we know that Jesus has used or been at feasts in the past as we've gone through John that the meanings of these feasts have been ways of him communicating who he is. But this is a different feast uh, and this is one that the uh, Jews had uh, sort of constructed and remembered themselves. So I just want to talk about that briefly, um, that this is the Feast of Dedication of the Temple. Now, according to the commentator Don Carson, uh, the Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes had overrun Jerusalem and polluted the temple by setting up a pagan altar to displace the altar of Israel's God in 167 BC. So that's some time before this and in a time when the Jews had no word from God. Because it was a very difficult time for them. Um, And there was this, this brutal repression under which possession of any part of the Hebrew scriptures was actually a capital offense. So if you were found with any part of the what they would call the Bible, because it was the book, it was the book they had, that was a death penalty. Uh, However, many Jews revolted and developed the fine art, if you like, of guerrilla warfare, and eventually they were strong enough to overthrow the oppressor under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, that's a cool name, I like that. Uh, Then they recaptured the temple and consecrated it to God in 164. So that was three years after Antiochus Epiphanes' blasphemy against the temple. The celebrations of this victory lasted for eight days, and from then on, they decreed that there would be a festival of lights, or as we might call it today, Hanukkah, to remember this eight-day celebration of rededicating the temple. And that comes from um, the, the, where Judas Maccabeus entered the temple he had found only a small jar of oil that Antiochus had not defiled. And so he had used that oil to burn the lamps. It was only enough oil for one day, but the lamps had burned for eight days. And so they celebrated this this real sense of, from their view, God's provision for them, what they were were doing. They were enjoying this reconnecting, if you like, with this really important place. So there's a lot going on. Sorry for the quick history lesson, but the Feast of Dedication isn't one that you would find in the Old Testament. But it is one that was was regularly celebrated and is still celebrated today. But I wonder what sorts of ideas are coming to mind. I wonder if you were in that situation, what sorts of expectations you would have. If you were Jewish at that time and there was a man going around doing these things and saying these things, what's going on? What sort of expectation might they have in this festival as they had at other festivals? Festival of light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Quite important. Um, So if if you've read any of the books of Maccabees, your hearts would truly be torn apart because it is one of the most difficult reads about the horrors that the Jews endured under Epiphanes. In fact, if you'd read that, you would want there to be a rescuer. You would want there to be a Messiah, somebody to come in and help, because that's what, the, that's what they endured. But if you've read some of the Old Testament, 
uh, particularly uh, some of us on a meet on a Wednesday, and we studied Daniel a little while ago, and we were looking at you know who was this Antiochus Epiphanes? What would God do with him? And of course, if you read Daniel, we find out that Antiochus's days are numbered, and that God is the one who is truly in control, and He would send a rescuer. So there's this sort of sense of expectation, isn't there, commemorating a great struggle which somebody then came to relieve them from. And so there's this question, isn't there? Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Are you the rescuer? Are you the one that we're waiting for? And, and, and that's really quite important, isn't it? And yet, at this time, I'm, I'm thinking, there's, is there a frustration in this question? You know, come on, tell us, you know, what, are you really the Christ? Or is there a bit of cynicism? If we read on, if you look at the passage further on, verse 31, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They were were on tenterhooks. They wanted to know one way or the other, is this the one that God has promised? And yet, at the same time, they were so ready to reject him. So in answer to that question, um, is Jesus the Messiah? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, verse 24, Jesus states to them, doesn't he, the signs speak for themselves. They speak that God, that he and God, the Father, were working together. They were working together as the demonstrations of his love and care for his people. Jesus states, in fact, it goes a bit further, doesn't he? If you don't believe me, believe in the miracles. Verse 30, um, verse 26, I think. Um, believe the miracles. So there's this sense in which they're not really willing to sort of grasp what's going on. They see these things and they either fail or choose not to understand the implications of them. But these demonstrations of God's power and grace to them through, uh, uh, through these chapters are all about revealing who Jesus is, that God has revealed his Messiah. God is revealing his goodness. God is revealing his rule, which is so much different from anything else. And we see, or we've seen this, I've already mentioned that the, Jesus calls himself the light of the world during the festival of light. We see, we, we see in chapter 7 that he's described himself as someone from whom streams of living water flow as part of that gathering together in the tabernacles. He is the bread of heaven, as he talks about and explains the feeding of the 5,000. There's a really, sort of, we can just see this picture unfolding in great detail and great gentleness um, of what Christ is like for his people. And then he turns here, he's turning to his, um, the security that comes from knowing God through Jesus Christ. Verse uh, 28 and 9. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a powerful verse. What a powerful truth to underline. What an important thing to think about. This is Jesus saying to people, you come to me 
And you will never be lost. You will never be floundering. Nobody can steal you from me. Such is my great love for you. The kind of security and safety that I offer can't be overwhelmed at the time by, by anyone. You think about that. What, what reassurance that is. That there's a loving God who has committed himself to your eternal safety. We might be thinking about you know, the pressure of work or the different things that are going on, the different disappointment of people sinning against us, the exhaustions perhaps of our health, or the demands of our family, or our own desires and failures that, that make us wander off or, or doubt this. But Jesus presents himself instead as this one sure, safe thing in life. What, what could be better than that? And how often do we remind ourselves of that? It's the safest place or person or relationship that you could ever have is with Jesus Christ. No one. This is the Son of God. No one can take you from me. His commitment to us is so deep and everlasting. And you think, he went and died and returned. And if death can't hold him, then it can't hold us. If we put our trust in him. That's, that, you, you almost, that's, that's just such a stunning thing. It's hope for today, isn't it? It's, it's the sort of thing that really we need to make more of. We need to allow to sort of permeate our life. This one's coming at me. This thing's coming at me. That's okay. I'm safe here. Jesus has got hold of me. Those are the things perhaps we should look at life like. Oh, I'm under all of this pressure. I've got all this going on. And actually, Jesus says, all right, hold on. We've got this. But their response, unfortunately, is to begin, verse 31, picking up stones. Hard hearts indeed. And perhaps we find those in people around us. Perhaps we've witnessed healing uh, people who, uh, and, and people have been healed and they've not gone on to believe and we're staggered and we're astounded. Um, it, that's what uh, stuns us, isn't it, actually, that this story that Jesus has presented them with so much and yet they choose not to follow. In chapter 5 in John's Gospel, we see a man who is healed, wanders off, starts, starts doing his own thing. And Jesus comes around to him and says, be careful. Don't go back to sinning or something worse will happen. And maybe we need to sometimes just be bold to that. You've encountered the living God. Maybe there are people you know who you need to be reminded. You've encountered the power and love of the living God. Come back to him. Why do you think he did that? Because he wants to save you. His healing of you is a sign of what he can do. So come back. Now that's really staggering, isn't it? But there's a real challenge for us, isn't there? We know people who've been touched by God in lots of different ways. And, and yet they're not yet walking with him or they've strayed. They're not quite there. So it's a really challenging thought, isn't it? Jesus presents himself. The signs are the big clues. And yet people still don't get it. Even so, Jesus says, well, if you don't believe my words, believe on those. And yet people still struggle. Perhaps the, second, um, perhaps the second big point then, that their accusation that you are not the Messiah, you are in fact a blasphemer, uh, is something that might help us uh, grasp a little bit of what's going on there. Verse 33, 
We're not stoning you for these signs. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, this is really quite complex. So if you're drifting off a bit, I suggest you shift in your seat. <laughs> Sorry, it is. It is, but I, I, I wrestled with this, and so, so are you. <laughs> right. Um, Psalm 82, which you can look up uh, later, but Psalm 82, there are three verses in there that are really important. Jesus quotes um, uh, from uh, Psalm 82. Now, Psalm 82 begins, God presides in the great assembly and he renders judgment amongst the gods. So there's this picture of God drawing to him everybody for judgment. And amongst, some, amongst them, among the gods, are those who have received his word. So Psalm 82 is a passage which talks about the failures of Israel's leaders in the past, but they were called gods because they had received revelation and his word. Suddenly we should be feeling a bit uncomfortable because verse 6 and 7 says, you are gods you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals and you will fall like every other ruler. It's quite a big picture that the giving of his word and the revelation of himself changes the st status, if you like, in the eyes of God of the people who see this. Like seeing something interesting and then going in to find out what it is about and then becoming like one of those followers. God has drawing them in and regards them, therefore, as being like gods. Now, this is getting quite technical, and I can tell one or two of you, it's early. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying is that if the scriptures, if in the scriptures which come from God, God himself uses the word gods to describe people other than himself, then how can I be blaspheming by calling myself son of God? God's already called other people gods. He's already used the word God. So it sounds quite technical, but what he's saying is, look, your own words, which can't be wrong, use the word gods when God is describing other people. And I'm just saying, I am the unique son of God. That's what they don't like, isn't it? That's what they find difficult. That's the challenge that people wrestle with Jesus was a good teacher, but he couldn't possibly be God. But look at what, you, what he did. He couldn't be anybody else. And what they're doing is they're putting blocks in the way. Intellectual blocks sometimes, arguments to be knocked down, in which they can say, well, he's not who he says he is. But the blasphemy doesn't count. Because the scriptures already include the word gods. And so Jesus is... He's always, he's always one step ahead, isn't he? He's always, he's always there. He knows it, which is really encouraging, isn't it? Because you, when you're praying to Jesus, you go, well, actually, you understand this better than me, which is encouraging, isn't it? So how, how we've got these two charges. They won't believe he's the Messiah, and he defies their charges that he's a blasphemer. What on earth can this passage do for me? Well, these are Jesus' words, aren't they? So th these are things that we've got to think about. They're not something we've picked up somewhere else. It's not a course for super keen people or some controversial author that, whose books are available on bookcases in um, bookshops in um, airports. Um, but it's, it's this sense of Jesus' words to you and to me.
Some really powerful words there, aren't there? No one can snatch you out of my hand. Believe in the word. Believe in the miracles. Put their trust in you. There are people whom God called gods because of what he gave them. And I, found, I think I found that the most tricky bit, but it was worth digging into because there's this, this idea that God, these people had received revelation, they'd received his truth, they'd received his word, and God was calling them back to him to see what they had done with it. And they hadn't done a great job, which makes forgiveness really important, doesn't it? Yes? Yeah, good, fantastic. But God had given his word to them generously and freely so that they might be transformed and be restored by him. That they might inhabit the kind of life that he wants us to have. That things would be different, that they would be different. If the Jews in this story had, had, had believed him, they might have been different. But Jesus is simply saying that human beings have fallen by rejecting the word of God. By referring to Psalm 82, he's drawing out the generosity of God and the rejection of people to do the simple things that God would call them to do. The opportunities to be transformed. They could have been restored, but instead they rejected God. They could have been enlarged and and, and their lives richer and blessed and the people around them blessed as a result. But instead they chose to hold on to what they had and stick to that. And that's the sort of the telling of this story, isn't it? The unbelief of the Jews is rooted in a preference for what I know, what I prefer, my way, the things I can understand, the things I can control, the things I prefer. Those are the challenges, aren't they? Jesus, we have this relationship, don't we? That Jesus is offering life in its fullness. You said that last week. Life in all its fullness. A guiding voice, safe pasture, growth and salvation. He brings to each and every one of us the grace, forgiveness and hope that we need. And he equips us and encourages us and nurtures us as we bump along to try and put our trust in him so that the world and ourselves might be changed. The reality is we fail to do that. We, we need to recognise our reluctance to change, our hesitancy our refusal sometimes to listen, to shut our ears to God like that and say, no, sing songs where spirit of the living God fall on somebody else. Um, Our refusal, our contentment then with how things are, our apathy to what God is like, our apathy to his voice, our apathy to being loved, the unbelief that we are lovable, these are horrible things. And yet that's what happens when we reject the sorts of things that God is calling to us. When we choose to do that sort of thing, we rely on ourselves and we, we end up, well, dry, spiky, thorny people without much grace or love or fruit going on. But when we accept this, we allow the Spirit of God to flow through us into every situation or conversation that we encounter. Some good, some bad. We won't win them all, but we will be changed. But God would have done what he wanted to do. We come back under the word of God. We are elevated. We begin that journey to being transformed to what we are supposed to be, what God designed in the beginning, what Adam and Eve turned their backs on. 
that close walk with the Lord himself. Something that we see glimpses of in the Old Testament that Paul described in his second letter to the Corinthians. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, the Spirit. There's that work of God that's an opportunity here. The Jews held back, and yet everything around them said, jump in. Where are we? Where are you? I wonder how this story might transform your week. I wonder how this story might transform some relationships around you about how we deal with things, about how we speak, how we listen, how we bless, how we pray, how we do our work, how we lead our families, how we manage our relationships, how we walk with God. That's the offer. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you came into a world that would not recognize you, who were your own, to call us to be your people, the sheep of your pasture, and that you have done everything, everything to secure our salvation, to be your people, to feed us, heal us, nourish us. And we ask that we would have soft hearts, that we might receive your, your joy and through your spirit, your gifts, your, your kindnesses to us, the word that says you're safe. Lord, we're going to just be still for a moment and just enjoy that peace that comes from you. We pray that you bless everyone. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.